All right. As you make your way to your seat, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Acts as we finish our one series uh, this morning. Acts chapter 12, our one verse is going to be verse 5, but I'm going to go ahead and read the context for you. And so we're going to go chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the very words of God when he says in chapter 12, verse 1, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would bless your word to the glory and honor of Christ, that it would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We pray that it would soften our hearts and that it would speak to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. In 1857, America was riding a strong wave of economic prosperity. And as tends to be true in times of plenty, uh, there was a radical decrease in church attendance, a radical decrease in caring of the things of God. And so there was a man named Jeremiah Lampfear. I think I say that right, Lampfear, Jeremiah Lampfear. And he had a concern that people were, that church attendance was down, that people were not in church. And so he was calling for prayer. And he tacked up notices, little, little flyers all around New York City. He was a businessman, and he put these flyers all around, calling for businessmen to meet him on Wednesdays at noon at a place he rented on Fulton Street to meet him there to pray. The first prayer meeting was on September 23rd, 1857, and six people came, and they were 30 minutes late. The next week, the attendance jumped to 20 people, and little by little, it began to climb until October 10th, the stock market crashed, and financial panic ensued. And as the trouble came and financial panic came, people began to turn again to spiritual matters, and it wasn't long Until every Wednesday, there was between 10 and 50,000 men, businessmen, gathered to pray. And by week 15, the meetings moved from weekly to daily. And in 1858, a year later, the prayer movement moved, grew so big that every major city in America was praying daily, and the Second Great Awakening began. And estimates are that millions of Americans, out of a population of 30 million at the time, were converted to Christianity in less than two years. The Second Great Awakening all started because people got together and prayed. Our text this morning 
what we find is that there were a lot of people who didn't like this new movement called the way, Christianity spreading, people following Jesus. They didn't like it. And so there were a lot of different people in a lot of different ways that were coming and killing everyone who was a part of that. And the way that they would kill Christians were a lot of different ways in this kind of different era where they could take someone out into the street and throw rocks at them until they were dead and they'd stone them. Uh, you had uh, uh, emperors put them on top of the Colosseum on spikes and pour, pour oil or pitch over them and set them on fire to light the Colosseum. You had them thrown to lions in the Colosseum as people cheered as they were ripped from limb to limb by lions. You had Christians beheaded. You had them tied to the back of horses and drugged through the streets. Christianity was new, and Christians were few, and they were being slaughtered simply because they believed in Jesus and they wanted to tell other people about him. And one of the men doing this killing, one of the men who was attacking Christianity was a guy named Herod. Verse one that we read said Herod had been laying violent hands on the church. And you may have heard Herod's name before, particularly at Christmas time, but this is not the same Herod. This is the great grandson of Herod the Great who, remember when Jesus was born, sent people to go and kill every baby two years old and under That's why Jesus had to flee to Egypt when he was a baby. His family had to flee. This is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, and he is picking up where his grandfather left off, and he couldn't kill Jesus, so he's going to kill all of his followers. And then verse 2 says, and he saw that it pleased the Jews. And I think that is a striking, incredibly sad verse, that the people of God at one point, the Jewish people, were now pleased that God's people, followers of Jesus, were being killed. And what that does is it emboldens Herod all the more, where he begins arresting more and murdering and killing more Christians. One of the disciples, James, the brother of John, was killed, and because it pleased him, now he wanted to do it more, and so he arrested Peter. You all know the name Peter. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. And so Peter has been arrested. He is not awaiting trial. He is awaiting the Passover to be over. And when it is, he will bring him out and kill him for the cheers of the crowd. See, here's the church. The church has been called on this mission to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, been called to share the gospel and make disciples from here to around the world. They're sharing the good news of Jesus. They're just using words, and yet they are being killed for it. And the question this morning is how should the church respond? When the church is attacked, how does the church respond? What should the church do in a situation like this? Its leader, its main guy, has been arrested and and getting ready to be put to death. What does the church do? Maybe the church should retreat. Maybe they could say there's another way, right? Like maybe we don't worry about Rome and Jerusalem and and Corinth, these big cities where they're being hunted down. Maybe they go down into Africa. Maybe they go further over into Asia. Maybe they go into places where people actually want to hear the message that they have and they leave these big metropolis cities where they're being hunted and killed. Maybe they retreat and go somewhere else. But that was not an option for the church. 
They had been given a mission, a divine decree from God to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That means you don't get to leave any place out. It doesn't matter how violent or how scary or how many people they kill. It was not an option to retreat. They were willing to lay down their lives for this message. So what's going to be their option? What do they do? They're being killed. So if they're not going to retreat, then... Maybe they spread Christianity by force. But we know that that wouldn't work. They knew that that wouldn't work. You can't force someone to believe. You can't force someone's heart to be changed. If anyone would have been into that, though, it would have been Peter, right? Like Peter, the guy who, when Jesus is arrested, pulls out his sword and cuts off one of the guards' ear. Peter, the guy who's always wanting to go and fight. Peter knew that wouldn't work either. So if they're not going to retreat, they're not going to fight, what is the church going to do? Peter's imprisoned, facing death. The mission of God seems like it's impossible. How are we ever going to convince all these people? How are we going to share the good news of Jesus that they keep killing us? How does the church respond? Verse 5, our verse this morning, that says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They don't retreat. They don't fight back. They pray. And our reaction to that it's probably something like, you know, that seems a little simplistic. That seems a little bit like the Sunday school answer, right? Like we're getting killed and we're supposed to just pray? You know, we don't run away, we don't fight back, we just pray? Like we want to take action, right? Like we want to go and protest and lobby for Peter to be released. We want to go hire a lawyer. We want to go fight. We want to storm the castle. We want to do something. We'll pray, but we want some action to go with it. Like, wives, real quick, have you ever had this moment in your marriage where uh, you've had a rough day and you just come home and you just want to tell your husband about it and you just want to vent and tell about all these problems, all these things, and, and what does he do? Before you're like through sentence two, he's got eight ways to fix it, right? He's already have eight solutions of how to fix all your problems. And he starts, he's like, well, honey, we can do it. And you say, stop, I just want you to listen to me, Right? And he's like, yeah, but we can fix it. I don't need you to fix it. Doesn't make any sense. We can fix it. I don't get it. But we as people are like that, right? Like we see a problem, we want to go fix it. Sometimes for us, we believe in prayer, but just kind of. We pray, but we want to do something else. We know kind of that God can do supernatural things. We know he can answer our prayers, but we kind of want to work just in case God doesn't really get the, me- get the memo. Maybe his internet's down like ours is. And I think part of the reason for that is our culture, the 21st century Western world, is one that is disenchanted with the supernatural. One that is disenchanted with things that we can't explain through science. Since the Enlightenment, magic and mystery and supernatural have been replaced with science and reason. Like we used to think, wrongly, but we used to think that when you had a headache, it was a, you had a demon in there and you drilled a hole in your head, right? We used to believe ghost stories. We used to uh, believe that everything had a spiritual significance behind it. And now, because of science, we know that there are not demons in your head when you have a headache. So don't go drill holes in your head. But... We often, because of this disenchantment, suck all of the mystery and all of the supernatural out of the world. 
we often do not see or believe in the power of prayer because we are so just disenchanted to the mystery and things that can't be explained. And sometimes we're not even sure if miracles still happen. And I think what we need a little bit is of a, a, a reawakening, a re-enchanting to the power of God at work in our lives. I think we need a renewed vision of the power of God, that God is still just as much at work in the world as he was when he was raising people from the dead, that there is nothing too broken, that there's no one too far gone for God to work in, and all we must do is ask. And here's the thing, I think, if we do not ask, we have no reason to believe God will do anything. But if we do ask, we have every reason to believe that he will. I want to look at four things that should happen when the church prays. That our response, our number one thing that we do is pray. doesn't mean we don't do anything else, but that we pray. And here's what it looks like. The first, when the church gets together and when we pray, our hearts are aligned to God's heart. Prayer is the alignment of our hearts to God's will. It is the job of the church to align ourselves with what God wants. Not with what we want, but with what God wants. And prayer is the aligning or fixing our heart to be in line with the will of God. In a lot of ways, we model what Jesus prayed. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he is facing the crucifixion, he's facing the cross, it's all getting ready to happen, it's getting ready to be terrible, and Jesus is scared and he's, and he's praying, he's like, God, if there's another way, let this cut pass for me, but then he changes the posture of his heart and what does he say? Not my will be done, but yours. And he aligns his heart with the heart of God. Our prayer should be, God, help me to want what you want. I was reminded of that song, that Hillsong song, Hosanna, that, you know, has been out for a long time. And there's a line in that song that says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. And, you know, that's so easy to sing. But it's hard to practice. And don't, isn't it true that often the things that we sing are much loftier than we actually believe. Now, sometimes we sing better than we believe, but that is what should happen, that when we pray, we are aligning, saying, God, not what I want, but what you want. For the church to embark upon the mission that God has given us, we need our hearts and our minds aligned with what God is wanting. Like these believers in this text who are gathered together in Jerusalem, we need to set aside time to pray until what God wants completely saturates what we're passionate about, what we're for. To taste a powerful life as followers of Christ and his church, we must begin with what God wants and then wrap our hearts around that through constant prayer so that our lives become an extension of God's will. And as we pray, and as we ask for God to accomplish his purpose and to change us so that our hearts and minds align with his will, slowly and surely, we will become less concerned about what we want and more concerned about what God wants. See, prayer, that's the, thing, the number one thing about prayer is that it is not so much about moving the heart of God as it is about moving our hearts to line up with God's. Prayer changes you. The second thing we see, though, is that when the church prays, we pray earnestly. 
It's there in verse five where he says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him. There's two ideas going on in this word. The first is one of focus. That when we pray, we're not distracted. When we pray, you know, we shouldn't be worried about how long is the preacher gonna pray at the end of the service because I gotta get to lunch. The line's gonna get long at Gold Star. You know, sometimes when, you know, if maybe you're in a, in a situation in a Bible study or something, you know, you, we, we kind of have this thing we do that's weird where we get in a circle and we pray in a circle, right? But what happens while, while everybody's praying in the circle, the whole time you're like, okay, there's two tell me, okay, what am I going to say? Dang it, he took my prayer. Now what am I going to pray? Ah, uh, ah. Uh. And you're just freaking out and you're just thinking about what you're going to pray the whole time and you're not praying with these people. You're just distracted. But we need to be focused. The early church did not back down in the face of opposition. Though they were being killed, they didn't back down. And we, our opposition may be a little different, but we have opposition. Ephesians 5 tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. And when the church gathers to pray, do you not think that Satan is on the attack? Do you not think that when you get distracted when you are praying, it's because uh, the, the domain of darkness wants you distracted? When you pray, when you pray and you are beginning to think about all the things you got to do throughout the day, the things that might be more important, do you not think that is the work of darkness distracting you? When you look at prayer as something that is boring, don't you think you have that thought because the devil wants you to think it's boring? Or when you think it doesn't work? Or when you're so focused on, man, that dude's praying forever. See, we as a church must have focused times of prayer that are undistracted. Uh, y'all remember that movie for the love of the game? Kevin Costner, old guy, and he's back and he's pitching. And he's on the mound and uh, he, he's getting distracted because everyone's yelling and screaming. The fans are so loud and he's, he can't throw straight. And he says this thing in his head. He says, clear the mechanism. And it's like once he focuses, all of that noise goes silent focus. We need to do that. I had an assignment in seminary for a class, and the assignment wasn't to go write a paper or read a book. It was you have to go be alone with no phone, no smartwatch, with your Bible, with no distractions for four hours, and then write a little paper about your experience. And that was a fascinating experience. Because for the first hour, you're just distracted. You're thinking about other things. You're trying to focus, and then your thoughts go this way. You're like, squirrel, right? You're trying to know Jesus. Jesus is going to be, squirrel, right? And, and you know, I'm sitting out in the woods, and a, a literal squirrel goes by, and you're like, you know, and, 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 and you get distracted. But after some time, you begin to kind of purge all of the distractions away, and you begin to get focused. And then God begins to dig up all of these things inside of you that you've been not dealing with. And you're like, oh my goodness, I need to deal with this. I need to think through this. I need to confess this. I need to wrestle with this. And you come out refreshed and renewed. We need prayer that is focused. But also when he says earnest, there's also the idea it's focused and it's passionate. You see, we need to pray more often by ourselves. When we come together, prayer is a little different. At home, it may be, you know, in your prayer closet where you're quiet and you're praying in your head and, 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 it, and it's, it's different. But when we're together, 
and we pray out loud, it's different. We don't pray just these quiet, petite prayers all the time. We need to pray with passionate pleading like David in the Old Testament. God, where are you? Where have you been? Why don't you show up? What are you doing? And when we pray, when we pray with each other, like it's okay to, to amen a little bit. I got one amen today. See? It's okay to get a little, uh-huh. Because what that does is say, I agree with what they're saying. I'm praying it with you. I'm echoing it with you. Yes. Yes. Come on. Because what we're saying is, yes, I believe that's true. God, I echo that. I pray that with them. Not just sitting here thinking about, okay, what am I going to pray when it's my turn? But yes, what they're saying is true. God, I'm echoing that. Yes. And you're saying something to encourage that brother and sister. Yes, that's true. Amen. Give me some more of that. Come on. Step on my toes, preacher. I'm just kidding. The book of Hebrews tells us that we boldly approach the throne of grace. That means we get to come to our Father not like, God, if you got a minute. Rather, hey, God, like David in the Old Testament, go read the Psalms. It's, it's amazing because David is always calling God out. God, you said you are, the, you are righteous and going to bring judgment on, your, on the evildoers and on the enemies of God. And you're not here and I need an answer. You know, David all the time is calling God to the carpet saying, God, help me to understand this. God, where are you at? God, I need you to do this. I need you to act. And we need to pray like that. We need to echo praying and pray passionately. Third, when the church prays, we pray and then we trust God. You see, often we, we pray and yet we live lives of worry, Right? Like we worry and our thoughts consume us. We got a situation going on and we're praying about it and we can't focus on anything else. Like we get physically sick sometimes, right? You get migraines, you get, you, you get panic attacks, you have anxiety, you can't focus on work because you're just worried about this other thing. But the Bible says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, worry saps your strength. Worry is the mind set in the wrong direction where prayer is the mind pointed in the right direction. Worry is the mind pointed in the wrong direction and prayer is the mind pointed in the right direction. When the church comes together with focused and passionate prayer, we pray and then we trust that our Father has heard us and that he is working. You see, we should pray, and then we should lay our head on our pillow at night and sleep easy, knowing that God's good purposes will go forth. We trust that God, uh, uh, God can rescue. Prayer has always been a catalyst for rescue, and he delights to rescue his people. I mean, think about it in the Old Testament. You got an army and, a, and an ocean, and God says, let me get the water out of the way. You've got Elijah calling down fire from heaven. You've got uh, uh, the sick being healed, the dead being raised. God loves to answer the prayers of his people. Verse 7 says this, an angel of the Lord stood by him. And a light shone in the prison. This is Peter. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. The church is praying. And while in the middle of their praying, God rescues people. 
And there are no amount of guards, and there are no, uh, no matter who was ruling, no matter who was in charge, God was able to accomplish his purpose. And nothing can stand in his way. God literally just made the shackles pop off his hands, and they walk out of there, and no one chases after them. There is no jail, there are no guards, there is no king that can stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. And sometimes, guys, we get all worried that God can't do it. Like, we get all worried that people are going to thwart the plans of God. Like, sometimes we get worried about who sits in the Oval Office when we shouldn't be because the the Oval Office is like the little, you know those little things you put on the bottom of chairs that, so they don't scratch your floor? The Oval Office is like one of those on the bottom of the, of the thing you put your feet on. What's that thing called? An ottoman? And God is sitting on the throne. He's resting his feet on that thing. And the Oval Office is like the little thing on the bottom. Like, God is in control. And we got to not be worried about silly things because the political power serves the purposes of God when they don't even know it even if they're a Democrat, and even if they're a Republican. Sometimes we get so scared when our loved ones are in the hospital. But we believe in the God who can raise the dead. Do you not think that God has the power to heal? But here's our objection. He said, but what about when God doesn't answer prayers? Like, you know the Garth Brooks song? Sometimes God's greatest gift is unanswered prayers. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> you know, and we look at a passage like Romans 8, 28 that says, God is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God's purposes are, are better than our purposes and ways are higher than our ways. And God has a plan and he's working all things for good. That means things that are hard and bad and, and difficult that are still working to an ultimate good. Like that's a truth you guys got to know now before the trouble comes because if the trouble comes, you're, you're not going to remember, you're not going to hear that truth because you're not going to see anything good going on in the trouble that you have. Like imagine for a moment when Jesus was arrested and he's on his way to be put to death. Can you not imagine that the disciples and that Mary and Mary Magdalene and all these women and all these followers, can't you imagine that they're praying? While Jesus is carrying the cross, God save him, God rescue him, God stop this, stop it. But God did not and he would not have ever answered that prayer. No matter how many people prayed, God, save Jesus. Don't let the Romans kill him. He wouldn't answer it. And the person who prayed it, had they known the plans of God, that this was a part of his purpose to bring forgiveness and to renew the world and that he was going to raise him from the dead three days later, they would not have even prayed it had they known. So we must pray and then trust that God knows what he's doing and that his plan is good and know that one day God is going to make all sad things come untrue. He's going to fix it. And when we get to heaven and we look back on the history of the world, we'll go, oh yeah, that all makes sense. I get it now. Now, it's crazy and chaotic, and we're like, why? But then we'll go, oh, huh, yeah, I got it. Good job, God. (laughs) 
It's our task and our job as the church to pray and then trust God is good and knows what the heck he's doing. We don't live and worry or anxiety about the future. We sit and we rest and we sleep soundly at night knowing that God never sleeps, never slumbers, and is always at work. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where the, where the king tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you gotta bow down and worship this idol that I've made or I'm gonna throw you into a fiery furnace and kill you. And what do they say? They don't bow down, they don't do it. He says, I'm gonna give you one more shot and when the music plays, you gotta bow down and worship it. And here's what they say. They say, our God is able to deliver us from the furnace and from your hand, O king, but even if he does it, we will never bow down and worship your idol. You see, they knew They knew God had the ability to deliver them, but they put their faith in God and not an outcome. They prayed, they trusted, and whatever God determined to do, they knew that was right. And if it was God's will for them to go into the furnace, they knew that's what should have happened. So we pray and then we trust. And finally, we pray and we have hope. You see, hope is the certainty that God will act according to his character and his time and his way. Listen to how this story ends in uh, verse 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, so he's been rescued from prison, now he's gone back to to, to his people that are praying. Peter knocked on the door of the gate. A girl named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness. She did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But everyone else said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting, it was him, it was so. So they said, it is an angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go tell these things to James and to the brothers And he departed and went to another place. You see, the church in that moment was praying up in the other room for God to deliver Peter. But what they didn't know was that God was already moving and already working. And God had already set Peter free. And yet they were were continuing to pray. They couldn't see the rescue had already been accomplished. What we got to see is that if we pray, church, there is hope because God is working This passage teaches us that it doesn't matter what we see or what we don't see, God's hand is at work. Like when Elijah thought he was the only believer and God said, no, I got 7,000 you don't know about. When Abraham thought he was going to sacrifice his son, but all along God had a ram caught in a thicket. When the disciples saw their Messiah crucified and they thought it was over and God said, no, I'm going to raise him from the dead. God is always at work and we just can't see it all the time. But we know that he delights to answer the prayers of his people. So fellowship. Let's be a church who isn't about what we want, but aligns our hearts with what God wants. Let's be a people who pray with focus and passion. Let's be a church who prays but then trusts God, who prays and has hope. You see, this church, the church, had a mission. Take the gospel everywhere. There were people literally killing them when they were just trying to do good and their leaders on death row. The church did the only thing they could do and should do. They prayed. And then the rest of the book of Acts 
is them continuing their mission. This chapter ends in a glorious way where Herod comes out to give a big speech and everyone says, oh, he sounds like a god. And God strikes him down and kills him. God brings justice. But then verse 24. So Peter has been rescued. Herod is put to death instead. And the word of God increased and multiplied. You see, God will accomplish his mission, and he will not let anything get in the way. Fellowship, we have that same mission. We stand on their shoulders. They are our brothers and sisters, and we have the same mission. We are here to see our neighborhoods, our communities, and the city transformed by the gospel, and we will not rest until it is, because that is the heart of God. But it's not going to happen without two things. It's not going to happen unless we share the gospel. It's not going to happen by just loving people and serving people. It's only going to happen if we actually speak the words of the gospel. But two, it ain't going to happen unless we pray. Unless we pray fervently and passionately and align our hearts to God's. If we don't pray, we have no reason to believe that God will act. But if we do, we know that he will and we will trust him. There's something special about when the people of God gather and pray. The second great awakening happened because God answered the prayers of his people. So church, let's pray for big things. Let's pray for life-changing things, for city-transforming things, for life-giving things. Let's pray that God would move so powerfully at your neighbors and in your neighborhoods and in Mainville and in greater Cincinnati that when we look at this place in 10 years, it would be unrecognizable from the place that it is today. Do we believe that God can move and work or do we believe that he doesn't really do that anymore and it's up to us? So church, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to pray. But I want you to pray. So I'm going to give you a couple options. Maybe, you're, maybe you just need to sit there in your chair when we sing here in a moment and pray by yourself. And that, that's fine if you need to do that. If you want to come up here and kneel and pray, you can do that. But I want to encourage you to move out into the sides over here and group up with some people you know or maybe you don't know. And I want you to pray together. I want you to pray for our city. I want you to pray that the gospel would go forth in power and transform people's lives. I want you to pray that revival would happen in our church and all the churches in our area and that the city would be transformed. If we don't ask for it, we have no reason to think it would happen. So we're going to sing a song. I'm going to stand up here. If you need to pray about anything, I'd love to pray with you. But I would encourage you to just go out there grab some hands, circle up, sit in your chair, come up here, whatever you want to do, just, let's just go pray, okay? So let's, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and we're going to do that. All right, let's go. Father, we come to you this morning, and...